We're going to be in Isaiah 12. You open your Bibles to Isaiah 12. That's what we're going to look at tonight, page 576. If you grab one of the few Bibles there in front of you, page 576. We're in a section where Isaiah is wrapping up this glorious discussion of what God is going to do for his people after describing the weight of sin. And there's enormous parallels to various biblical texts. One that comes immediately to my mind is how the Apostle Paul ended the glorious section of his inspired writing in Romans 8 and verse 31 when he asked the question, What shall we say to these things now that he has described that sin has been dealt with and the justification that occurs by faith and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? You get this finale. Well, what shall we say to these things? And that's where Isaiah is at here as he wraps up this first section of his prophecy. He has been describing the things that God is doing for the people. And this 12th chapter now is a discussion of what God's people are supposed to do. Now, let me kind of set the table of where we are at in the time frame of what Isaiah is prophesying. We saw at the end of chapter 11 last time that Isaiah is prophesying of when the new David is going to sit on the throne and he is going to rule. Picturing a Messiah that is going to come. The people are steeped in their sins and they are going to experience God's judgment. But a new David is going to come. The root of Jesse, the stump of Jesse will have a shoot that will come out of that stump and he is going to rule. And chapter 11 and verse 10 said that he is going to raise a signal for the nations and all the nations are going to come into him and find salvation. And we see that text quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15, telling us that Jesus is that Messiah. And what is happening in the first century and onward as people come to Jesus by faith, receive salvation and have forgiveness of sins, that this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was prophesying. And so when we read Isaiah 12, as we did with Isaiah 11, he's talking about us. We're not looking at, okay, well, this was fulfilled in 400 B.C. sometime when the people came back from their captivity. Not at all. He's talking about the people who are going to seek after Jesus. When the Messiah comes, here's what his people are going to be. In fact, our nearest connector is at the end of chapter 11 and verse 16, where we're told there that the highway from Assyria is going to be made for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Egypt and they came as there was for Israel when they came out of Egypt. There is a veiled reference there to the Exodus. And Isaiah is going to seize upon that in a number of spots here as we go through this 12th chapter. That what happened in Israel's day when they were enslaved to Egyptian bondage and they were under that thumb, how God delivered them and brought them out with a mighty hand and saved them, it's going to happen again. There's going to be a great new exodus. A new highway is going to come just like in those days. And the Messiah King, this Davidic King, is going to be the leader of that exodus. So that's what brings us now into Isaiah 12. Let's read it and then we'll continue to put the points together. Isaiah 12. 
You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. All right, well, let's move with this. One of the things that I think is interesting about this song, this prose that Isaiah lays out here, is its parallelism to what happens in the Exodus. Back there in the Exodus, remember after they crossed the Red Sea and the Egyptians are overthrown in that, remember what is the first thing that the people of Israel do? They sing. They sing the song of Moses. They sing of this great deliverance that has occurred. And now notice that we have that parallel here as well, is that as chapter 11 concludes and describes, there is going to be a new exodus. A new king is going to come, and my people are going to be saved, and this exodus will occur, he describes. Now here's what the people are going to do after they've come through that exodus. And so the first thing that he tells us is there in verse 1. And he tells us something that I think is unique here in the way that he describes it. In the first two verses, your Bible might make the notation that the word you is actually singular. When we get to verse 3, it becomes plural. And so we're going to teach it that way. That first he begins by speaking to each of the individual believers in the remnant. Here is what you as an individual are going to do. And then when we get to verse 3, he's going to say, now here's what we do collectively as God's chosen people, his remnant. Here's what we do together. And so that kind of sets the grid of what Isaiah is laying out. So as an individual, number one, he says in verse 1, here's what you as a believer in the new David, in that Messiah, what you will do. He says, you will thank the Lord for his grace. You will thank him for his grace. Verse one, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Notice why. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. A beautiful picture is laid out here of what we will do. He says, each of us will offer thanksgiving because the anger of the Lord is turned away. Now, remember our context through these 11 chapters. The first chapter told us you have bloodstained hands. He tells them you are sin stained. You are bloody. You are filthy. And I don't want anything to do with that. When we get to chapter 6, Isaiah stands in a vision before the throne of God. And remember Isaiah's words, I'm undone. I am lost. I am ruined. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in a land of unclean people. And so there is this weight of sin that is described in each and every chapter. When we get to chapter 9, what have we read? This four-time refrain. His anger has not turned away and his arm is still outstretched. 
And so Isaiah is picturing the wrath of God chapter after chapter. You have sinned. You are undone. You are ruined. You are lost. You are full of sin. Your lips are evil. And God's anger has not turned away. And then chapter 11 told us that the new David king is going to come. And chapter 12 says, here's what you and I will do as individuals. We will thank God because now the anger is turned away. The anger that has been described chapter after chapter is standing against us, that his arm is still outstretched and his anger is not turned away, has now finally turned away. In fact, notice what it says there in verse verse 1 at the end end of verse 1. That you might comfort me. I will thank you, Lord, because your anger has turned away. And now you're able to comfort me. No longer does God have to stand against each of us as individuals, as a wrathful God because of our sins. Now something has occurred so that God can now come to his people and offer comfort and his anger can be turned away. I think it is a beautiful picture for us because I think Isaiah teaches us something very valuable. And the thing that he teaches us that is so valuable is that the reconciliation was not brought about because of anything that we've done or our willingness whatsoever. This story has been exclusively about how God, for basically, if I might say, no good reason, has decided to cease his anger and is now able to comfort his people. That is what is being pictured in Isaiah, that the people who are deserving of wrath are now receiving undeserved comfort. That's what God wants to instill in his people. There's no reason for God to do that. And in fact, think about the whole scene that you have down there in Exodus when the people are in Egypt. Why does God deliver them out of Egypt by a mighty hand with the plagues cross the Red Sea and take them in to the promised land? Because they were a good people? Because of anything that they had done? No, just because God was a good God. And God had made a promise that he said they were going to live in that land and so he is keeping his word. That's the only reason why. And the same thing is coming out here with this parallel to the Exodus. A new Exodus has occurred. Well, why has it happened? Is it because God's people have been good? No, we've read 11 chapters that says quite the opposite. They haven't been. But God, because of his mercy, his goodness and his love, has decided to make a change and is able to turn his anger away and comfort his people. I want to submit to you that this image that we're reading here in verse 1 is the concept of what propitiation is all about in the New Testament. This is exactly what is being described for us when the New Testament writers tell us that Jesus is put forward by God as a propitiation for sins. He is the reason that God is able to comfort us. It is through his faithful life, through his suffering and death and resurrection that makes it possible for God now to extend comfort and extend goodness to the people rather than wrath that we deserve. He is the whole picture here. This is what propitiation looks like, is that he had to come so that God could be just 
in setting anger and wrath aside and extending his goodness and righteousness and comfort. And so he says, here's what God's people will do. They will thank God for that. My people, when Jesus comes, he says, when that Messiah, David King arises and that new exodus occurs where people are saved from their sins. He says, here's what my people will do. Each individual will thank God. They will say in that day, I give thanks to you, O Lord, because though you are angry with me and rightfully so, you have given me comfort instead. And so he says that is the first aspect of what the new people of God will do. Number two is in verse two. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord. God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation still to the individual, to each individual. He says, this is what you will do. This is what he will say. He will say, behold, God is my salvation. And he gives an explanation. This is the reason why each individual that is a believer and belongs to the Lord This is why he will trust in the Lord. In fact, notice he reiterates it with three descriptions. He gives the answer. He says, I will trust and will not be afraid. Why? Why will you trust in God and not have any fear? Three reasons. One, for the Lord God is my strength. Two, the Lord God is my song. Three, the Lord God has become my salvation. That's what he gives us the answer there. The Lord is my strength, my song, and my salvation. Therefore, I trust in God and I will not fear. I begin to look at God and recognize He has done everything for me and therefore He is my everything. Every amount of my being belongs to Him. How can I not trust Him because of all that He's done? If he has turned his wrath away and extended comfort to me, regardless of what I have done, though I be undeserving of that, rather deserving of wrath, then how can I not trust him because he has become my salvation? And so that's what he says. So therefore, I will not fear. Therefore, I must trust in him. And I want you to see how this is exactly what the song of Moses said. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Here's how the song begins. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now watch the direct quotation. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Word for word, the new exodus has come. And what will the people of Israel do? This new glorified people do. Each one is going to say these same words that were said in the days of the exodus. He is my salvation. He is my song. He is my strength. So the picture is that he will be everything to us. He's all that we need. He will encompass everything about our lives. And I want to just kind of break down each of those thoughts about what he says and what this exactly means for us, what this looks like, these three aspects, because 
if we have a handle of these three things, he is my strength, my strong, my song and my salvation. He says, when I have those things, verse two tells me then I will trust and I will not be afraid. Anybody in on that? I'm in on that. I'll trust and not have any fear. I'm in. I have these three things with me. He says, that's going to be the basis of my trust and no reason to fear. So I trust in the Lord. Number one, because he is my strength. This is a great picture. He pictures a people that will not trust in themselves. They will not rely upon themselves. They will not be strong in themselves. They will be strong in the Lord. That is where their strength will come from. In fact, we saw that in chapter 11, as he talked about this new faithful remnant in 10 and 11. And what did he say they would be? They would not rely upon those who were afflicting them. He was speaking of Assyria. They will rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Their trust will be exclusively in God and will not be on any other. And now it's pictured here as the new David arises, who will belong to this kingdom and who will then enjoy this salvation? Who are the ones who are going to put their trust in him? They are the people that find their strength in the Lord God. You know, the New Testament tells us that in a ton of places. How about 1 Peter 4, verse 11? Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves, how are you supposed to serve? By the strength that God supplies. We are able to do and serve and act and live and breathe and do all that we do. On the basis of the strength that God supplies us. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Be strong where? Finally, brethren, be strong in yourselves and rely completely on yourselves to get through everything that you need in life. That's how I conclude my letter to the Ephesians. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. What's the next verse? Put on the armor of God that you may be able to withstand all that Satan is trying to do to you. The people of God are strong in the Lord. They find their strength in Him. They do not trust in themselves. They do not rely on what they're able to do. They rely strictly upon what God is able to do. The picture, I think, would be to look at it like this. When I see what God has done, when I keep firmly planted in my mind, and I keep in my line of sight at all times, that I am deserving of God's wrath, and He has turned that wrath aside and has now extended comfort to me, then that frees me to serve. In fact, it makes me want to serve. It gives me the strength to want to do the things that I typically would not want to do. When I see God's goodness and glory, that's what gets me out of bed to do the things that I need to do for God. That becomes my motivation as to why I tell people about God. And that's why I don't act angry like I want to act. And that's what changes my life and recreates my soul is because I see what He has done by turning Turning wrath away and comforting me, then that's going to change who I am. But when I forget that, then I'm not relying on his strength anymore. And I'm doing what I want to do. And I'm driven by whatever external things are in my life. But when I see the comfort that has now been turned to me so greatly undeserved, That becomes the strength to serve, the strength to teach, the strength to lead, the strength to be generous, the strength to experience radical life transformation from the gospel. 
That's what brings the renewing of the mind, the renewing of the spirit. I keep this good news always in my mind. That is the strength that God supplies. Number two, the Lord is my song in verse two. That feel out of place to you like it does to me. Okay, I get God is my salvation and I get he's my strength, but he's my song. That sounds a little... mm. I don't get that song. Why is he my song? What does that mean that God is my song? It is interesting how often the scriptures speak of his people bursting forth into song over and over again. We already noted Exodus chapter 15 when great and majestic and glorious deeds of God are accomplished. It seems that there's always a song that comes with it. They cross the Red Sea. Let's sing the song of Moses. Revelation chapter 14, the redeemed of the earth are now standing before the Lord. And what are they singing? They're singing a new song. They're singing the song. Of the Lamb. And so they burst forth into song. We should not be surprised at this idea. The inspired Word of God has 150 songs put together in one collection for us. The people will burst forth into singing. The idea is that the singing is not about music, it's not about, okay. Words to God get boring, and so I'd like a little bit of tune with it. That's not the idea of why song exists. The idea of song is that it is something that is welling within us. That has to come out. That has to burst forth somehow. This joy that we have because of what God has done for us, because of the comfort that we have, rather than wrath, needs to come out of me and be expressed to other people. That's why the Apostle Paul didn't just say sing. He said, I want you to make melody in your hearts to the Lord. He didn't say, make sure you sing a complicated four-part harmony that sounds really awesome when we get all done and around and it'll all be perfect. He wants words that are welling out of a heart. Colossians 3.16 How are we singing? With gratitude. With gratitude coming from the heart. That's what's being described here. First verse, I will give thanks to the Lord. Verse 2, He's my soul. I have to give thanks to Him. It is bursting out within me. That is the nature of why song is so important. Is God wants an overflow of the heart. I recognize that there are many who are not musically inclined, nor care to be. I understand that I think there's genetics to that, that some enjoy music and hear the sounds and love the melody and feel the beat and all that, and other people, I think it's completely lost on them. I understand that. And that's my point, is that God's not interested in just the musicality of it. That's not what's involved here. What is involved is that we are teaching one another and expressing the awesomeness and greatness of God and what he's done for us. And I recognize that greatness so much that I have to proclaim it in any way possible. That it reaches down into my heart. It reaches down into my very depths and pours out of me in words. In song. 
That is why song is so important. Song is important because God said, when my new David arrives and rules, he says, my people are going to sing. And they're not just, okay, yeah, we've got to sing. They're going to be so enthralled and captured by the ways of God that it's going to reach so deeply within them that it will flow out of them. That's what he is calling for in picturing. And so I'll put it like this. God wants your words in whatever tune you carry pouring out of your heart. I don't care if it's nails on the chalkboard. If your spouse says, you know, boy, (laughs) you were tone deaf. God doesn't care. And friends, neither do we. It is an expression from the heart. It is a bursting forth of recognizing what God has done for us. A lot of the songs that we sing, we know those words really well. Close them up sometime and sing from the heart. And I'm not saying that having a book open means you're not singing from the heart. But what I'm saying is sometimes we can get so focused on the circles and the diamonds and the squares and the triangles that we're not paying attention to the words anymore. And the words matter. In fact, the words matter so much that he says the song should be of thanks to God because of what he's done. It should be this magnificent overflowing of who he is. And I think that's important for us that we carefully consider the kinds of songs that we sing. That the words that we are saying are words that fit what the scriptures tell us that we are teaching one another and that we are proclaiming the praises of God and that we are saying how great it is for what God has done for us. We should always ensure that we never come to a generation of songs or songwriters that we just make songs all about us. And oh, yay us. It's only yay us because of yay God. And we only get to say yay us because of yay God. And it means to always be about God is awesome, therefore I get to sing. God is great, therefore I will praise. God has done glorious things, therefore I'm happy. These are the things that we have to keep in mind. May we never disconnect what God has done from who we are. We are who we are and experience what we experience because of all that God has done. That's what Isaiah is saying. The Lord will be my song. Number three, he says in verse two, and he has become my salvation. Always keeping in our minds that God has rescued us from death. He has rescued us from wrath. He has saved us out of absolutely no obligation or necessity of his own. Uh, That is probably one of the points that is uh, hitting me the hardest and trying to preach on Sunday morning right now is just reading. You you could have stopped this Jesus at any time. Uh, You just could have stopped all of this at any time. There was absolutely no obligation on God's part to experience and deal with all that he dealt with. And therefore, how can I not give thanks to God Because he has saved despite my sinfulness because of his goodness and his love 
and therefore I will give him everything. When you put those three together, that's what he's saying is, therefore, I will not be afraid. I will have no fear based upon these three things. And I I was trying to get my mind around that. How does that lead to now you will not fear anything that comes in your life. Now that He is my strength, He is my song, He is my salvation, then whatever happens, I will trust, He says, verse 2, and I will not fear. Allow this very, very poor illustration. But as I was thinking about how to understand this, my family, as you know, take very extensive road trips each summer. <laughs> we pushed the boundaries this last year, went all the way to California. And it's a good time. And what we do is, my wife and I, we share the driving load. One sleeps, one drives. The other sleeps, the other drives. It is interesting in doing that as you try to get your rest that you'll sometimes hear the bumps in the road, you know, and you start and you'll feel the sudden slowdown and things like that. And what keeps you from panicking? Or what makes you think that when you hit the dun 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 that's only a lane change and not you flying off into a ravine? <laughs> you know? Where does that come from? Why do you continue to sleep through that? Because you have fully trusted the person who's driving, and therefore you don't worry about it, right? That's the only reason you do. You just continue to snooze on through because you have put your life in the hands of somebody that you completely trust to take care of it all. I believe that's what Isaiah is driving at with this phrase. Why will you not fear? Because I completely trust the one who's in charge and I am relying upon him for everything that I need. That no matter what happens, no matter how many bumps in the road, no matter how often it appears that I'm going to go flying off the edge, I know that I've got trust in God. He's my salvation. He's my strength. He's my song. It's going to be fine. And therefore, no matter how dark circumstances may be, or no matter how difficult things can get, I have this foundation above all else. He has turned his wrath away and he has comforted me. He has done all of this for me. Therefore, I will trust. He has not brought me to this point to destroy me. He's bringing me to this point for salvation. He has become my salvation. Therefore, I will trust and not be afraid. Verse 3, he now shifts to the we. That you there in verse 3, with joy you, is a you all for all of us here. That's a, that's a plural you. With joy you'll enter, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now a togetherness is involved here. So the first two verses as individuals. Here's what each of us will do as individuals belonging to this great king who has come to save us and extended comfort to us. I will give thanks. He is my salvation. He is my song. He is my strength. We now will draw with joy from the wells of salvation. And I want you to think about the context here for a moment, what Isaiah has done. Remember how this imagery of water started in chapter 7. God comes to Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, take your son, Shirjiasim, a remnant will return, this is a boy's name, and I want you to go talk to Ahaz and tell him to trust in me. But where's Ahaz? 
Ahaz is checking the water supply because he's afraid of the invasion that's coming. He's not trusting in God in the slightest. In fact, chapter 7, remember God said, ask of any sign. Ask of the earth below and the sky above and the heavens and I'll give you a sign. And Ahaz in his false piety, oh, I will not dare test the Lord. If God asks you to give him a test, do it. And so Ahaz says, I do not have my joy in God. I will not trust him. In chapter 8, Isaiah went further and said that my people have rejected the gentle waters of Shiloh. They have rejected what I am offering as this soothing, pure water that they could enjoy. They will not rely upon me. They will not trust me. And so the picture is that in this new community that would occur under Jesus as the king, those people together will find their satisfaction in the Lord. They will only have a thirst for the Lord. They will not thirst for anything else. So chapters 10 and 11, not only will they rely upon the Lord and trust in the Lord exclusively, not only that, their thirst will only be for the Lord. They will thirst for nothing else. They will not thirst for worldliness. They will not thirst for other things in this world. Their thirst will strictly be to the God of their salvation. That will be their desire. That will be their hunger. They won't look anywhere else. I don't know if you can remember this far back. Remember Jeremiah 2 lesson, the first lesson of our our idolatry series. No, it's the last lesson of our idolatry series, Broken Cisterns. You're going to broken cisterns and God can give you a fountain of living water. Jesus uses that imagery in John 4 and in John 7. I have the living water. You're supposed to be thirsting for me. I will satisfy if you will thirst for me. Stop thirsting for the ways of the world. Stop thirsting for the things of this life. David said it so well. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Is that true? I read that and go, ouch. My flesh faints for you. Or my flesh will get around to it when I'm not too busy. Or when everything else doesn't satisfy. Then I'll come to you. David says, I've got this thirst. And it's not for anything else but the Lord. And only you can satisfy. Isaiah says, that's the characteristic of my new believers. They won't be like the former Israel. When the Messiah comes, this is what my people will be like. They will thirst for me. They will draw from the wells of salvation. And they will do so with joy. That will be what is what they want. They won't want anything else. This will be the heart of the new community that God would create. That comes from seeing that God's wrath has been turned away. Jesus as our propitiation. And therefore, I live by his grace. And number four, verse four, 
and you, plural you again, you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. It's a quote that comes from Psalm 105, verse 1, or the other way around. I don't know who did Psalm 105, not told to us who the author is. So either the psalmist quoted Isaiah, or Isaiah quoted the psalmist, or Isaiah wrote that psalm. Take, take your pick. Either way, the point is this. He says, you know what my new community will do? Not only are they going to find their thirst only in the Lord and none other, but they will then teach others. And give thanks to others and tell others to call upon the Lord. That they will proclaim His deeds among the people. They will proclaim the glory of God. And they will show that He is exalted. And they will celebrate that and show it to the world. Again, parallels what Exodus 15 is doing. As we see like Miriam and like Israel singing after the Exodus. It is the work that the apostles began as they would go about and proclaim that gospel into the ends of the earth. They understood their role in this new community that was being built through the Messiah, that the word must be spread to all the nations. And I think it's important for us to see this picture. This is what the people will do. This is what we will do. We will make it known through all the earth that God has done glorious things. What will we tell the world? Verse 5 tells us very clearly, sing praises to the Lord. Why? Why should we sing? For he has done gloriously. Make this, let this be known in all the earth. What be known in all the earth? What should be known in all the earth? That he has done glorious things. That's what verse 5 tells us. That is what must be proclaimed. The Lord has done glorious things. Therefore, I will make it known to all the earth. It is not an individual salvation that we sit back and go, boy, it sure is great that God has turned his wrath away through the cross. And therefore, I get comfort. Let me sit down in my easy chair because that is good news for me. He says, we now will make it known to the world. We will proclaim the glory of God. We will make it known through all the earth because he has done glorious things. We cannot help but speak the very words of God. That will be in the Bible somewhere. Yeah, the apostles said it. Why can't they help but speak the very words of God? Because God has done gloriously. They grabbed it. It was right there in their heart. And so Isaiah is speaking of it. This is what is going to happen. Look at verse 6. Oh, verse 6. What an ending. What a finale. Shout and sing for joy. Why? For the Holy One of Israel is among you in greatness. Because God has come back. We've separated ourselves because of our sins, but God has come back. The Holy One of Israel is among you. In all of the glorious blessings that we have in Christ, I believe this is the greatest. Of all the things that we have, God with His people is the greatest blessing. That God can now be with us. 
wrath averted, comfort extended. God can be with his people. That's why the very first page of Matthew's gospel has to be name that child Emmanuel. God's with us. God has come. That's why I love John 1 when we were doing John, the gospel of John. And he tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only son, full of grace and truth. He made his dwelling, his tabernacle right here with us. God with us, God with his people. And so we give thanks to the Lord. We shout for joy. We make known his deeds among the people. We offer our praises. We sing from the heart. We put our trust in him. We put our hope in God because God is with us. And he has come to comfort his people. When we pull it off of what the 11 chapters have told us about how we deserve wrath because we have sin-stained hands, God says, I will do to a people like I did to Isaiah. I will come and I will cleanse you so that you can be my servant. So that we can raise hands like Isaiah and say, send me. I don't know where you're sending me, but send me. I will be a servant. I will do all that you say. I will put my trust in you, for you are my strength, my song, and my salvation. Let me end with Romans again. We began with it. Let's end with what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say to this great comfort and glory that God has done? He's carried us this far. Let us put our trust in him until we go home to be with him. Boy, son,